and it quickly drove huge record sales and enormous enthusiasm among new fans. Uh, The band and their sound were something new and exciting, and they were coming to America. John Lennon, Ringo Starr, Paul McCartney, and George Harrison set off on a series of tours, starting in Europe, visiting the U.S., then Hong Kong, Australia, and New Zealand. Beatles fans were so excited and determined to see the band that they would actually have to use fire hoses to keep people away. And this euphoric fascination with the Beatles was coined Beatlemania. Um, And uh, I don't have any personal memory of this, but we've seen it even with, I think, some recent bands. Um, The two stories in our text this week are famous. And here's the difficulty with that. We We can read them and they're familiar to us, and, and we, that thing happens in your brain where it just kind of shuts off and you move on to the next thing. And we often regard these amazing stories with a sort of pious passivity. Um, if you've seen these Jesus films, there's typically like this, these muted-faced crowds and, and a Jesus that speaks in kind of melodic, uh, and he typically has a British accent. Um, And I think that that's typically what we associate these stories with when we think about it. But I think the energy around these events was a lot more like what we saw in Beatlemania than maybe what we imagine when we typically read these stories. So if you would, um, just bow your head and pray with me. Lord, we thank you for these fantastic, mind-blowing stories that inform us about your kingdom. We pray that you would open our imaginations to your transformative power today. Amen. So um, my name is Donnie Epp, and uh, I am a member of the teaching team. Uh, I was asked uh, a couple of weeks ago if I was a member of the staff here, and the answer is unequivocally no. Um, And if you look at me that way, then we're all in real trouble. So, uh, and, uh, but, but we meet weekly and we talk about what we want to share uh, on Sunday mornings and, and then ultimately deliver that uh, each week. And um, I was sharing with the group earlier this morning, um, and I'll mention it a little bit later. This week has been hard for me, and I'm, I'm really struggling with where this is going to go this morning, so I ask for your grace um, in that, and uh, hopefully we actually get something out of this. So uh, as a church, uh, we've been following along on the, na- the narrative lectionary, and this is um, a kind of a selection of scriptures that takes us through uh, the Bible each year, and it focuses typically on one gospel, um, and it gives us vignettes um, of the kingdom of God, uh, and it follows a liturgical calendar. It goes through the birth, the death, and resurrection of Jesus, and ultimately culminates on Easter and Resurrection Sunday, um, and we are getting really close to that culmination time, and Lent uh, is right around the corner, so we'll be talking more about how we recognize and celebrate Lent uh, as a community in the next few weeks. So uh, I wanted to give us a quick overview of where we are at right now. Um, With the narrative lectionary, I sometimes lose track of exactly where we're at um, in Matthew, and so we start Matthew with the birth of Jesus, and Matthew begins to show the fulfillment of prophecy in that. Um, The Spirit of God descends on Jesus as he's baptized by John the Baptist. Uh, He then goes out for 40 days of temptation into the desert. Um, And when he comes out of that temptation, he begins kind of his ministry. And so we looked for a few Sundays at the Sermon on the Mount. And this was kind of Jesus's shtick for the kingdom uh, that uh, where he really frames up, hey, here's what my kingdom is. Uh, And then we skipped about seven chapters in Matthew 
um, and we landed last week with a few parables. And what happened in between there, I think, is relevant because it's really, it's really when Jesus' ministry began to come into full force. It's when that Beatlemania began to emerge uh, around this movement. Uh, and, and I think, you know, I don't know if you read the title for, the, for this week, but uh, when, if you, it kind of jogged my mind of, okay, if we look at this like a news story, Jesus was an activist, and they were starting a movement. And so what was the energy like around that? And so that's kind of where we drop in um, looking, at these, looking at these stories. So um, with that, let's go ahead and read. Um, and we're in Matthew 14. Um, if, you're, if you're interested, and the words will be up on the screen. Now, when Jesus heard this, he went away from there privately in a boat to an isolated place. But when the crowd heard about it, they followed him on foot from the towns. Okay, so when we talk about Beatlemania, Jesus is trying to get away from people, and he gets in a boat to go across a lake, and these people walk around this lake to meet him on the other side. And I imagine, you know, when the, when the, the police line breaks loose and people start running around the, the lake. And I looked at a picture of the Sea of Galilee this week, actually. I'm pretty sure that on a clear day, they would have been in the boat going across the Sea of Galilee, and you could actually see the crowd um, going around. And what a, ni- what a nightmare. Um, so uh, as he got out, though, he saw the large crowd, and he had compassion on them, and he healed their sick. When evening arrived, his disciples came to him. Jesus, we are in the middle of nowhere, and it's getting late. Send the crowds away so that they can go into the villages and buy food for themselves. But Jesus replied, They don't need to go anywhere. You give them something to eat. They said to him, Okay, Jesus, we have here five loaves and two fish that we took from this kid. (laughs) Bring them here to me, he replied. He then instructed the crowds to sit on the grass. He took the five loaves and two fish, and looking up to heaven, he gave thanks, and he broke the loaves. He gave them to the disciples, who in turn gave them to the crowds. They all ate and were satisfied, and they picked up the broken pieces left over, 12 baskets full. Not counting women and children, there were about 5,000 who ate. We're not going to comment on that piece right there, uh, but there were probably, there were more like 15,000 people present based on just kind of rough estimates if you count women who might have attended, and we know there was at least one kid um, because they took his lunch. Um, immediately, and so this is kind of an abrupt transition here. Immediately, Jesus made the disciples get into the boat and go ahead of him to the other side while he dispersed the crowds. And after he sent the crowds away, he went up to the mountain by himself to pray. So he finally got the rest and the isolation that he was looking for. When evening came, he was there alone. Meanwhile, the boat, already far from land, was taking a beating from the waves because the wind was against it. And windstorms are actually pretty common on the Sea of Galilee, so they can just kind of churn up at a moment's notice. It's not a, like I said, it's not a large body of water as we would typically think about a sea. Um, and so he can see them. He's, he's up on a hill, and he can see the boat. And so, uh, yeah, so meanwhile, the boat was already far from land, was taking a beating from the waves, and the wind was against it. As the night was ending, Jesus came to them walking on the sea. So he's walking on the water. When the disciples saw him walking on the water, they were terrified and said, It's a ghost. And they cried out with fear. But immediately Jesus spoke to them, saying, Have courage. It's me. You don't need to be afraid. Peter said to him, Lord, if it is you, 
And I just want to highlight here, Jesus just said, it's me. And then Peter goes, if it's you, order me to come to you on the water. And so he said, come on, Peter. And Peter got out of the boat, walked on the water, and came towards Jesus. But when he saw the strong wind, he became afraid, and he started to sink, and he cried out, Lord, save me. Immediately, without hesitation, Jesus reached out his hand and caught him, saying, You of little faith, why did you doubt? When they went up into the boat, the wind ceased, and those who were in the boat worshipped him, saying, Truly, you are the Son of God. So, um, a lot happens here. And so we're not going to dig it. I mean, seriously, the, my, my notes at 5 o'clock last night were, I mean, it was like 15 pages. So if you, if you want to hang out this afternoon, I have plenty more content. But what I really want to share is, is really kind of three observations um, from reading uh, this scripture. And, and I want to kind of use the question of what does this tell us about the kingdom to frame that up. So the first is kingdom power is really, really different than earthly power. So you'll notice when we started our, our passage, it says, now when Jesus heard this, so there was an action before where we cut in, some, Jesus heard something, and that's what prompted them to get in the boat and go across the lake. So what was that thing? Well, Jesus got some really bad news, and this wasn't just bad news for Jesus, it was bad news for the entire community and the entire kingdom movement. So Herod, um, a fairly famous figure um, in many of our stories, he's a regional ruler in the Roman Empire, uh, had thrown a birthday bash uh, at his house, and uh, we find out from other scripture that he was really into his brother's wife, and so there was a lot of messed up stuff going on there. And as a part of a twisted, drunken night of debauchery, Herod ended up ordering the execution of John the Baptist, who he had imprisoned because he was telling them things he didn't want to hear. And uh, he brought his head to the throne room on a silver platter. And it's messed up. This is messed up. And it's no wonder that when Jesus hears this, John the Baptist in many ways was Jesus' predecessor, his mentor. And we're not going to dig into it a lot today, but in many ways, Jesus can't fully become who he's going to become until this succession kind of happens. And so it's no wonder that Jesus wanted to get away. One of his best friends um, has been killed in this brutal way. And that's important, but I also think it provides an interesting juxtaposition between our power and God's power. So on one hand, we have Herod, in a tragic and disgusting abuse of power, prey on John the Baptist. He has no consideration for the vulnerable, and he uses his power to impress his friends at a party. And this isn't old news. Um, if you've read any of the news headlines this week, this stuff is happening today whether it's R&B stars, clergymen, or owners of NFL teams. On the other hand, we have Jesus. He encounters a vulnerable, desperate, and needy crowd, and with his awesome power, he feeds them. So in lifeguard training, uh, they teach you, uh, one of the first things that they'll teach you is, hey, when you're, when you're approaching someone who is actually drowning, approach them from behind. And this is important because the person is probably in panic mode, and they'll do anything to reach the surface, including you, using you as a flotation device. And it's called instinctive drowning response. And maybe you can relate to this, but uh, in my life, I have this 
aversion and the same approach, I think, sometimes to people who are vulnerable and who are in need. Uh, I'm worried that they might latch on and use me as a flotation device. I'm worried that they might drag me under and they might get their, their neediness on me or call my house late at night and need something from me. Um, and I feel like a terrible person telling you that, but I would, I would be curious if you've ever felt that same way. But Jesus does not work this way. The kingdom of God doesn't work this way. Instead, the response is to move towards people who are hurt and needy and desperate, even at our own risk. Kingdom power is really different than earthly power. Okay, so have you ever stopped to ask why Jesus was walking on the water in the first place? So many of his other miracles um, involve healing people, uh, they involve feeding people, they're, they're productive, they're redemptive of creation. And in this case, uh, he just seems to be doing it to do it. And so it begs the question, why do we include it here and why did he, why did he do it? And I think we get a little bit of a clue if we look in Mark. And so this story appears in all four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Um, and so I am stealing some context from these other books as we go through this. But in Mark, the language is very specific, and I think it gives us a clue. It says, seeing them straining at the oars. So remember, Jesus is on the mountain place and he's looking out. Seeing them straining at the oars, for the wind was against them, he came to them walking on the sea, and he intended to pass by them. That's a very interesting use of language. And when I first read it, I'm like, okay, so Jesus sees his guys on the sea struggling in the water, and he's like, I'm just going to go pass by them. Like, I'm just going to like, hi, and just, and that's it. No, these guys need help, you know? Um, and, but that language is, is, is familiar. So we look at Exodus when Moses is on a mountaintop and he's about to receive the law, the Ten Commandments, God is about to write the Ten Commandments on stone, give them to Moses, and Moses is going to take these back to the people. And Moses desperately wants to be close to the God of the universe. And God says, okay. And in his mercy, he arranges this kind of odd situation where he's going to pass by Moses and reveal his power to him. And if you remember that story, uh, it's quite the experience for Moses, and his face like glows for several days. Um, and, and God turns his, he only shows his back because my power is so great. If you actually see me like in my full glory, you're going to die. And, he, and they use this language. Uh, and, and, and God passed by Moses on the mountaintop. So I imagine Jesus on land looking at the disciples, and these are the people that he is entrusting to carry the message of his kingdom out into the world. And he's like, man, these guys are still not getting it. They're not getting who I really am here. I don't think they're, they're quite understanding. What can I do to show them who I am and what my kingdom is really about? And so despite his own grief, he's in this moment of reflection, prayer, and in that fatigue, he steps into the churning water. And there's something really kind of tangible about Jesus expressing emotion in this moment, too. He steps into this churning water, the anger and the chaos of the waves, and he moves towards his disciples. And just like Moses, the disciples see Jesus' real power as they are empowered to bring news of the kingdom to everyone else. And they respond to their credit. I think the disciples actually do a lot right um, in this scripture, and we dog them a lot. But their response here is completely appropriate. 
And Jesus gets the desired effect. So when they went up into the boat, the wind ceased. So not only do they see Jesus walking on the water, the wind stops. And those who were in the boat worshiped him saying, truly, you are the son of God. And I think that's a huge part of why Matthew includes this in the scripture, is this was a point of recognition of God's power and his identity um, of who he is in the kingdom movement. The kingdom has a king. So kingdom power is really different than earthly power. And his compassion is very different too. In the kingdom, his great compassion never runs out. Hmm. Have you ever been looking forward to taking a break? Maybe right now. (laughs) It's been a busy week. You have your sweatpants on. The kids are, I'm giving you a, a little picture into my life. Hopefully you can relate here. You have your sweatpants on. The kids are asleep. All of the remotes are within arm's reach, so I don't have to move. Maybe I have a snack, and I have a movie queued up that I've been hoping to watch for a while now. These are my favorite moments. I imagine these moments. They're fewer and far between. Um, And then you get an urgent text, or the doorbell rings, or Um, As I've recently experienced, your kid throws up in the hallway. So I just imagine the disciples in their boat. And like I mentioned earlier, this lake is not big. They could probably see the people walking around the lake. And they're looking for rest. They're scared. One of their own has had his head chopped off. Um, They're exhausted from ministering to the gospel. It says, I think in John, um, they hadn't had a chance to eat. So this is the moment where they're at. They probably want to put on their sweatpants and watch a movie. And they land on the other side, and they are greeted by this mob that I imagine is much more like Beatlemania than what we typically imagine, like orderly lines and passive people. These are needy people. They chased him around a lake. So what would you do in that situation? And I have to ask myself this. I would probably use words. You know, you're pulling up to the bank. I'm probably using words I can't share it from the front today. And Jesus gets out of the boat, he sees his people, and he responds with great compassion, and he continues to pour himself out. And I don't know where this is coming from for him. Well, I mean, I guess we kind of do. He pours out this great compassion from his emptiness. And it says they were like sheep without a shepherd, and Jesus steps into that gap and begins to teach them. Uh, When we read this portion together as a teaching team, and we're thinking about getting shirts made, um, Amy made the comment, I would make a terrible Jesus. And wouldn't we all? And then, just a few hours later, after extending this great compassion to his people, he does the same thing with Peter. So I have another question about this whole story. I do not get, and I have not, I've been trying to reconcile this all week. Why does Peter get out of the freaking boat? Where is he going? Peter, where are you going? So the other day, um, and okay, so I wasn't planning to say this. I, I always worry when I use examples with my kids that they're going to hear this someday and be like, Dad. Um, but it was, 
And I th- so I thought about not using this one, but it, it was so perfect this morning. We came in and the worship team was practicing, and I brought my five-year-old because my little one is homesick with the flu. And uh, she comes running in, and she's super pumped. She feels very independent because she knows I'm not going to be watching her. Um, she feels very independent, and she's running across and right there, and her shoe pops off, and she just, like, wipes out, like, splays out. And, the, and there were a couple chuckles from the <laughs> Randall side. Okay, so... <laughs> So she, she is not the most um, athletically gifted at this particular stage in her development, okay? So, um, so it, it was just confirmed to me, though, that I'm supposed to probably share this story because to me, it, it, it's how I relate to Peter. So uh, we were playing catch the other day, um, and I had like a big kind of cushy ball, and we were playing catch, and I was, bas- I was bouncing the ball to Addie and, so that she could catch it. You bounce it, have a little bit more time to look at it, catch it. She was catching it, nailing it. I'm like, this is great. I'm like, okay, Addy, I'm going to not bounce the ball this time. I'm just going to lob it to you. So have your hands ready. And she goes, Dad, I'm the best catcher. <laughs> I said, okay. So I lob. I'm her dad. I care about her, okay? You know, I'm, I'm not doing a baseball. <laughs> so I lob the ball. And, and for a second, it looks glorious. Her eyes kind of get big. And she puts out her hands. And I'm like, it's going to happen. And then, the, and then it didn't. She completely whiffed it. The, the ball hits her in the face and her hands clap in front of her like this. So we're still working on that. Um, but do you think I was mad at her? No. How could I be? And I think this is how Jesus looks at Peter. Peter in his childish, affable enthusiasm says, I'm the best catcher. And he jumps out of the boat into the water. And for a minute, it looks like he's going to pull it off. I mean, based on the account here, he takes a couple of steps on the water. But when he whiffs, Jesus doesn't take him into the boat and dress him down. He immediately reaches out and lifts Peter up. And Myra added this to our discussion. Jesus is faithful to who he is. Every single time, he immediately, and they use, it uses the word, he immediately reaches out and lifts Peter up. And when it says, when Jesus asks Peter, why did you doubt? I think many times we read, and I know I read, why did you doubt that I could make you walk on water? Or why did you doubt that you could do something so stupendous and spectacular and adventurous and world-changing? But it doesn't say that. It just says, why did you doubt? And so I think that Jesus meant something more like, why did you doubt that I was who I said I was? Why did you doubt that I would protect you in the storm? Why did you doubt that when I said, get in the boat and go to the other side, that that's actually what I wanted you to do? Peter didn't have it. Peter couldn't do it. But that doesn't mean that Peter was a failure and had nothing to offer ever. And that brings me to the last observation. In the kingdom of heaven, a little bit can turn into a whole lot. So last week, uh, and Abwe actually brought this point out in our discussion this week. Last week, we heard the parable of the mustard seed. And it said, the kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed, which a man took and planted in his field. And though it is the smallest of all seeds, when it grows, it is the largest of garden plants and becomes a tree, so that the birds come and perch in its branches. 
in an incredible and tangible way, Jesus takes this parable and makes it real in feeding the crowd. He takes five loaves of bread and two small fish and he multiplies it to feed 15,000 people. You, you notice I'm quoting a bunch of people from our, our teaching team this week because I did, like most of this I just stole from someone else. Um, Alex made the comment in our preparation this week that sometimes I think we think to ourselves, it's all or nothing. Either I have everything that it takes or I don't. And if I don't have everything, if I'm not equipped with everything, then I guess I can't. So I'll just sit here. And that is not what God asks of us. Instead, he asks us to give what we have no matter how small. And I want to be be clear, so this is a little bit of an aside. We are asked to pour ourselves out as a living sacrifice. Yes, we are asked to do that, but we are, it is also okay to rest. And in fact, some of you need that right now. I know that I need it this afternoon, so do not call me. I will be on my couch in my sweatpants. Uh, it is okay to rest. And in fact, we see Jesus pursuing rest through this entire story, and he gets like five minutes on the mountainside. But multiple times, he, he is seeking actively that rest. And I think we need to be okay getting that rest for ourselves and also letting other people have that rest when they need it. But he does still ask us to give him our lunch when we need to give him our lunch. He asks us to give what we do have. And it's not very sexy. Obedience rarely is. And I love Crystal, and I don't know how to say her last name. Crystal Kurgis is a blogger, um, but I love her perspective on this, and I just thought I would read a portion from her blog post. She says, I hate the boat. I have lots of boats. And to varying degrees, I want nothing more than to climb out of them so that I can do big things for God, because I'm pretty positive that's what he wants from me. I think we all desire to do big things for God, really big and awesome things. We assume that this requires us to be brave. Yes, I will, I am. I am better than Peter. And we assume that being brave means climbing out of the boat into the stormy sea. But maybe that's not brave. Maybe it's just stupid and self-serving and disobedient. Maybe the real courage happens there in the boat where God actually placed us, where nothing big happens where we don't keep trying to write a better story of our lives because we are busy living the, the life that God has given us, where no one sees us or applauds us or notices us or follows us or says, oh my, look at her, look at him, what a sight, gracious, aren't they grand? Maybe the real question isn't, when God calls you out of the boat, will you be crea- uh, courageous enough to go, but rather, when God commands you into the boat, Will you be obedient enough to stay? Our question for the week was, what are you doing right now that you could not do without God? And I had to think long and hard about that because I came up with that question, so I figured I better have an answer. And it was a little depressing at first, but man, this week, that thing was this. It was getting up here and doing this because I, I feel like I, I would be fortunate to have a half a mustard seed on this stuff. And so um, I appreciate you playing along. (laughs) Um, 
But, uh, but I really think about that question because it, it really kind of took me for a ride this week. So if the, uh, if the worship team would like to come up, uh, I'll wrap it up. Before feeding the 5,000, Jesus uses almost the exact same language that we see at the Last Supper before he's crucified. And here's the language. He took the five loaves and the two fish and looking up to heaven, he gave thanks and he broke the loaves. He gave them to the disciples who in turn gave them to the crowds. So now let's flip over to the language. And I'm, I'm using the, the formal language here, but this is mostly in scripture as well. At the Last Supper... Jesus took a loaf of bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it. He does the same thing and says, This is my body, broken for you. Eat it and remember me. In the same way, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it and remember me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. At the cross... Jesus gave himself as bread, just like we see in our story this week. And that gift is multiplied through each of us. That's our commission. And we're going to do that today, this afternoon, or later this morning, in communion and worship and giving. And we're going to do this acknowledging that kingdom power looks really different than our power And that his compassion for us is great and it never runs out. And in the kingdom of heaven, we give what we have because a little bit can turn into a whole lot. Thank you.